Well, good morning, Pleasant City Church. Thank you so much for joining us again this morning. I'm here with Christian Harmon, our student pastor. My name is Jonathan Glisson. Uh, we match today, buddy. Look at Isn't that. Isn't that exciting? Look at that. <laughs> our hair is getting kind of long. Christian, your yep. hair, you need a haircut. Been a few weeks. I need one. We're at the tip, buddy. Like, it's almost this wave right here is about to crash. Mine, so, actually, I've been putting hairspray in my hair to keep it up. My wife doesn't know about that. So I've been stealing her hairspray because otherwise it just nice, falls in my face. <laughs> nice. We're in the trenches with you. We know you're kind of in the same spot, uh, but we're excited uh, about the future. We're excited about what's to come. And we're in the middle right now of a series called Church has left the building. And it's really a series that we talked about last week and that we're going to continue to talk about the next coming weeks. But it's this idea that church is not based on a geographical location or a certain time of the week. Church is not really that. That in fact, through all of this, the church has not been canceled. We've said that yeah. almost every week. Right. But that church has just left the building. Because we are the church. And if you're a believer in this room, you are the church. You make up the church. And we did this kind of thing last week. And maybe it was a little awkward for you in your home with your family doing this. But we want to encourage you. If you're a believer in Christ, we just want to declare together with one voice right here at 10 in the morning on a Sunday morning. We want to declare together uh, I am the church. And so we're going to all say that together right here and right now. I'm going to go three, two, one, and then we're all saying it together. Is that cool with you? It's cool with me. All right, so here we go. Three, two, one. I, I am the, the church. church. Man, we are the church. We don't want to just do churchy things. We want to be the church. That's what this series is all about. Yeah, and so... Um, we have these next two weeks, actually, um, when me and Jonathan were starting to uh, prepare for this message, we came across in the books, book of uh, Revelation, uh, the, the seven churches that Jesus speaks to in the beginning of that book. And uh, so for the next two weeks, we're actually going to be going over these seven churches mentioned in the beginning of Revelation. And this week, we're going to hit the first Five. So stay tuned next week for the next for the last two. But the thing about this is this requires some intentional thinking, and it's not an easy message. I know yeah. I don't know about you, Jonathan, but for me, this has been a very kind of introspective, deep, uh, thoughtful, and I really had to think about this. And it's it's an impactful mo a morning. Really, we hope for you guys because uh, I know it's been impactful just preparing for me. Yeah. And so I challenge you guys this morning: lean in and listen. Because And we want to listen with our ears and not our elbows, not thinking about who else is in the room, but listen to who, uh, what God has to speak to you this morning. And a lot of the things we're going to talk about, just as a disclaimer, a lot of the things we're going to talk about this morning are directives for the church. They're directed at people in the church. And if you're not a believer and you're watching this, that's phenomenal. Keep watching um, and learn what the church is about and kind of these mandates that Jesus has put on the church here. But... Uh, just know that most of these directives are directed for people within the church. Yeah. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And it's interesting because Revelation is always known as the book about end things, mm -hmm. end times. And really the, the whole, pretty much the majority of Revelation is about that. But really the first few chapters 
was really written to the immediate churches there in Asia Minor. Mm -hmm. And John is the author. He's stranded. He's exiled on the Isle of Patmos, which is a pretty cool place. You've actually had the opportunity to go there, which I think is pretty neat. <laughs> um, but he's there alone. And Jesus shows up in Revelation chapter 1. And you have this incredible depiction of Jesus. In fact, it's my favorite description of Jesus. In fact, if you get a chance to go read it, go check it out. And after this, Jesus gets with John and says, hey, I want you to write these words down. We're going to send these letters to these seven churches. You know, that was interesting. Last week we talked about uh, in Acts 2, it was really the birth of the church. And at the end of Acts 2, you kind of have this state of the union mm -hmm. of the church there in Acts chapter 2. And the state of the union is very optimistic. It's very yeah. exciting about what God is doing there. And here in the, the last couple or the first couple of chapters of the book of Revelation, you have another state of the union of the church. And the state of the church at this time is not as optimistic. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what you've been talking about, that it, it is convicting. There's a lot here that's, that's tough to hear. And so we want to encourage you as we're reading through these, really, where are we at as a church? How, how would you identify our church? Where do you find us as we go through these churches? Yeah, so the first church that we come across that Jesus is respond, really responding to here, what the church is like, is the church of Ephesus. And he starts out saying some really great things. In, in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Some great things there already. And he continues in verse three. I know, I know you and are, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So this church is looking good. They are working hard. They are making sure that they're teaching the right things that they're enduring. They are currently enduring hardships and patiently. They're not growing weary with that. They're okay. And the cool thing about this is Paul was, when Paul set up this kind of, a, this church was really like an evangelism center when he was there and for the three years he spent there. And then Paul warned them in the, the fourth chapter of Ephesians to be wary of false teachers coming in. So they're doing that. They're, they're making sure that false teachers aren't coming in. And this church has had great leaders in the past. It was went from Paul, then Timothy, and then the Apostle John, who's writing this letter, were all leaders of this church at Ephesus at one point in time. But then in verse 4, Jesus says this, But I have this against you, you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus is saying that they have lost their first love, that they're doing all of these great things, but they've completely lost their first love. And this is important because what Jesus is saying here is what we do is important, but why we do it is just as important. It is possible to serve, sacrifice, and suffer for Jesus and not really love Jesus. That's a possibility. That busyness does not equal love. Labor is no substitute for love and purity is not a substitute for passion. It's kind of like this, that I can, uh, I can clean the house, I can cut the grass, I don't really cut the grass, but I can cut the grass and not cheat on my wife, and, but I can't call that love. That does not equal love. Just doing the basicness of keeping a house up and doing things doesn't equal love. That love is more than that. And this is a scary one for a church because you can look great on the outside. 
but not have the love of Christ. That everyone outside of the church or the community, you can look like a really good church. It can have had great leaders in the past and but be completely missing the point. And here's the thing, this requires some self-examination. They probably didn't realize that they had lost their first love. It wasn't something that they woke up in the morning and said, all right, we don't care about Jesus anymore. But more, they slowly got too caught up in the busyness of what they were doing than caring and loving about the things of God. And how easy is this for a church to fall into, right? We can have great messages. We can do great things in the community, bring tons of people into the church, play the right songs, support great groups, doing organizations, making a difference in the community, help people, make great videos, have engaging small groups, all of this stuff. And that's great because Jesus is saying that those are great things that they're doing but we can still miss the whole point. They are commended for doing good things, so we should keep doing those, but we can't forget the why. We have to, be, we have to know why we're doing things. We're not just trying to be an entertaining event to watch. We're not just trying to bring a lot of people together. We're not just trying to do something that makes us feel better about ourselves or lift up one person's ego, but we are here to bring glory to the Father because of what Christ has done for us. And here at Pleasant City Church, that's our desire. I know that, and you can see that in our vision statement. I love God, connect with others, reach the world. We start with love God because we don't want to forget that part. And then the same thing with our culture values. Start with Jesus is our lead story. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. It can get so easily, we can be so easily distracted and lose track of where we're at. And Jesus tells the church, and here's the scary part about that, is we can do all these great things. We can have this great influence in the community and be doing all these amazing things. But Jesus says to the church in Ephesus that he is going to take away their light. He's going to take away their influence in the community if this doesn't get right. And that for me, as a, as a pastor here, is a scary thing to make sure that we keep the love of Christ centered in our church. Yeah, that's right. That's a great, great point. Um, you know, then he moves on to the next church on the route, right? And it, it starts in verse 9. He's talking to the church in Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty. The, this church was very poor as far as wealth goes. They were rich in Christ, but very poor as far as resources go. And what you find in verses 10 on is this church that really nothing bad is said of them. Jesus doesn't say anything here bad. What he says to them is, hey, there is coming more persecution. You guys are about to face severe persecution. That he is going to allow Satan to persecute and bring suffering into the church. And that's kind of tough to hear, you know. The main takeaway for this church is that Satan is intending suffering to sabotage the church while God is intending suffering to sanctify the church. And you know, it's easy for us to read this little passage here, this, this passage on Smyrna. It's easy for us to read, a, read this and kind of put ourselves in this church. You know, we talked about identifying what church are we. It's really easy, especially with the inconvenience we're faced with. Some of us are suffering. Some of us maybe even have lost loved ones through this. It's easy for us to kind of put us within this church. But I, I, want, us to, I want to encourage us to not really think that way that we really are not really the church of Smyrna. I can actually say this with good authority, that this is not a church that we here in America, in Shelby, North Carolina, currently relate to. So what's really the main reason of bringing this church up to begin with? Well, there's two reasons. One, we just don't feel right just skipping over a church. Uh, we didn't want to lead us to that point. But the real reason is we want to kind of shift the focus 
of our current suffering and inconvenience to realizing that all over the world right now, there are places and there are people and there are brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe even watching our video right now that can relate to this, that truly are being thrown in prison, that truly are suffering severe persecution for the sake of Christ. And so as we think about what church do we identify, we might not identify with this church, but man, we need to remember this church. We need to remember there are places in the world today, right now, where people are suffering. And we could do a whole message on this church. It's a great church to study. Uh, but I, let's move on to the next church. The next church that Jesus talks about is one that I hate to say we might identify with uh, and that many churches might identify with. And it's this idea of a compromising church. Jesus says to this church in Pergamum in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now that sounds kind of bad. That actually sounds really bad, you know. Uh, but he's not really talking about the church as much as he's talking about the location here. Pergamum was a capital city of Asia. It was a city of high culture, attracted some of the finest academic minds, but they were steeped in the worship of a false god of healing. And this is what they were steeped in. They were in this. And so when Jesus says this about them being located in Satan's throne, he's really saying that this city was virtually the headquarters of satanic opposition in this region. And he goes on in verse 3 to talk about this church. He says, Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. He's saying, hey, we were, you were in a bad place. In fact, Antipas here, if you go and study about Antipas, he was actually a believer that was roasted alive, slow roasted alive in a bronze bull that they had cast it out. And you think about a bad way to go. That is a pretty bad, awful, awful way to go. And imagine that. Like, imagine, I, I can't even fathom that. I can't imagine us in Shelby, North Carolina, uh, having one of our church leaders or pastors drug off and put in one of these places to roast to death over several days' time. Could you just imagine that? I mean, I don't really think we can relate to that, but we can definitely applaud the resolve of this church. That even when things like that were happening, they were not faltering in their faith. They were still proclaiming the name of Jesus, even in the face of martyrdom, even in the face of persecution. And that's all great. But then Jesus says a little rebuke here about them in verse four or 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put stumbling block before the sons, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Now some of this is like, what is, what is he talking about here? Well, you kind of have to know what he's referring to. He's referring to, uh, in Numbers 22 through 25, the story of Balaam, the false prophet, and Balak, the Moabite king. Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel. And it's an interesting story. You should go read it. There's a talking donkey in the story. It's like Shrek all over again. Um, but it's a great story. It's very interesting. But every time Balaam tries to curse Israel, they get blessed. And 
they leave defeated. Balaam and Balak leave defeated. They're thinking, how in the world does this happen? We're trying to curse Israel, and they keep getting blessed. So they switch tactics. They say to themselves, if they couldn't curse Israel, if they can't curse them, then they'll corrupt them. And that's exactly what you see in Numbers 25. They scheme up a plan not to curse them, but to corrupt them. And what you see in the people of Israel is this, this, this seduction of the Moabite culture begins to influence the people of Israel. They begin to compromise. It's this idea of compromising. And this was the same attack that Satan was putting on this church in Pergamum, a church that compromised and began to tolerate evil, this friendship with the world, participating in the same immoral things that the world was doing. That, I mean, their teaching was fine. You know, their teaching may have been right, but they were not living out what they were teaching. You see, heresy is not just teaching the wrong things. It's also teaching the right things and living in contradiction to those things. And Jesus is telling this church, hey, you cannot sustain this compromise. I will not allow this to continue. And he says in verse 16, hey, if if you don't change, I will come to you soon and war against with the sword of my mouth. This contradiction of teaching versus practice made them at war with God. I mean, what a bad place to be as a church. James 4.4 4 says this, that friendship with the world is enmity. It's war with God. And our church may be known. I mean, I hear this all the time, Christian, of our church is known as a church that teaches the Word. I mean, you see reviews on Facebook and Google, and it's, it's very encouraging, you know, as a leader to hear our church is teaching the Word of God. Like, I hear that all the time, and I believe that. I do believe we're teaching the Word of God. But it's not just teaching the right things. It's living out the things we are teaching. And if PCC is not doing that, then man, we are no different than Pergamum. Do we entertain things contrary to what we teach? Are we as a church compromising? Wow. Wow. So we've hit three churches now, and then the next church that we hit is this Thyatira. Excuse me, Thyatira is the correct pronunciation there. It's a tough pronunciation. There's a lot of weird city names here. Um, but in verse 18, this is chapter 2, verse 18, uh, Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the first. Good works, has love, is patient. This is the church that you want to be so far. They were not simply practicing religion. They had love and they were getting better, right? That's something that we always want to do. We want to continually improve. We want to just be okay with where we're at. Jesus says there, your latter works have exceeded your first works. That's great news, good news. But in verse 20, Jesus says, they allowed the false teaching of immorality. And I want to be cautious with how I say this because I don't want to misrepresent the Word of God, but I know that there are uh, young ears listening, that people are watching this video with their families and um, with all different age groups and people there. So I want to be cautious with how I say this. Just, we're going to call it immorality. Read verses 18 through 28 to see exactly what the immorality is we're talking about. Go, but go read through that 18 through 28. And here's the thing. Jesus is talk, talks about Jezebel here and the people 
would know who Jezebel is, who they're talking about. But the thing is, most likely, they're not talking about someone actually named Jezebel. Jezebel was um, was a Old Testament uh, woman, and she's been dead thousand years or so at this point in time. But she enticed the Israelites into the, adding the worship of Baal uh, to their religious ceremonies. Not considered to be such a great woman. You don't want to be considered a Jezebel. It's not a good name to be called. But she's, he's calling this false prophetess a Jezebel. And this is what happens is this is how the enemy starts attacking. We've had a couple different churches here. We've had Ephesus and he really distracted them with works, right? So the enemy distracted Ephesus with works. Uh, Smyrna was with persecution. Smyrna was doing well, really well in, in persecution, but Satan meant that persecution for evil. And we have Pergamum who had this compromised theology, right? So doing bad things. But here's the thing. If he can't do all that, he starts to attack by allowing immoral acts, or at least tempting people to do immoral acts. And see, here's the thing, you can have all these great things as a church, all these great things again, but then miss it so bad here. And, and oftentimes, this is one of those things that are hidden. Immorality is something that can be, in this case, something that's hidden, that is not out in the open. You don't talk about it to other people. It's not necessarily something that's celebrated, that people could show up to church on a Sunday morning and have, and everyone have no idea what's going on until something comes out and then that's a bad situation. And so going to these behind the scenes, it's, it's different from all these other places because it's very hidden. It's very hush-hush. And, and here's the thing, Jesus spends more time addressing this church than any other church. He uses more verses here addressing this church than any of the other ones. And even though they have so much stuff going on, but they're missing it here. And, and here's the thing, and we know this, there's so many churches that can ignore this topic because of how uncomfortable it makes people. It's really hard to tell people that they are in sin while also being loving. And it's also sometimes hard to see that sin within ourselves, right? It's very hard to address that sin and see that, you know, we are in the wrong. But Jesus is really direct here that not accepting immorality in the church is important to him. That not accepting that is very important to Christ because he spends so much time talking about this in this church. And it's one of the reasons in Warehouse, uh, here in our student ministry, we actually address this every year. We spend at least a few weeks every year addressing this in our relationship series. Um, and it's for this very reason, because it's an important thing to God. It's not something for us just to breeze over because it's a difficult thing to talk about. It's something that we have to talk about. And there's this interesting comparison, I think, that can be taken between the church of Ephesus and the church of Thyatira, right? Ephesus it did not tolerate false teaching. This is not something that would be allowed in the church of Ephesus. Ephesus had all the right things, were teaching the right things and doing the right things. But here's the thing, they, they were lacking love. And the, but Thyatira is actually the opposite here. They are growing in love and doing stuff very lovingly, but allowing this false teaching of immorality. So you have to have both. You can't, it's not an either or. Yeah. God is not happy with you just getting all the teaching right and not being good over here or just loving everyone and not getting teaching right. It's a not an either or. Jesus is calling out both of these churches and because it's not okay with just throwing out one or the other. And here's the thing. I do want to remind everyone here that he is specifically talking talking to people within the church, people who are identifying as believers here in this thing. And here's the, the deal, guys. There's a harsh, harsh punishment to this church. Jesus basically says he's going to make an example out of them. You don't ever want to be made an example. Just never in general do you want to be the person who gets made an example of. But this church, he's saying, 
Basically, he's going to throw them on a sick bed of pestilence and into tribulation and all this other stuff. It's not a good situation for this church if they don't change their ways. Yeah, and then we come to this last church, the church in Sardis, the last church we're talking about today, uh, the church in Sardis. And Sardis was a wealthy city. Uh, they were very wealthy. They were into fine clothes. In fact, that was a primary export of theirs. The city was well built. It's an, it was an acropolis about 1,500 feet above the valley floor. Uh, just the landscape of this city made it nearly impregnable. And there's a reason I want to share both of these things with you here in just a second. But look at what Jesus says about this church. This is probably, in my opinion, one of the harshest things he says about any church. He says in verse 1, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You know, as a staff, we talk a lot about this, Christian. We talk about just the fear of one day having to close our doors as a church because we are no longer effective in the community. We see this all over our county. We see this really in all of America right now. Uh, churches closing their doors. They're dying off. And as scary as that is for us to think about as leaders in your church, as scary as that is, Jesus is talking about something that is actually far more scary in this passage. A church that has a reputation to everyone of being alive, but to Christ is dead. I mean, could you imagine the horror of that for just a second, guys? For people to look at PCC, to look at what we're doing in the community, overseas missions, here on campus every Sunday and Wednesday and our stuff online, all that. They could look at all of that and think to themselves, man, that church is alive. And yet to God, we would appear dead. Man, what an awful condemnation to be said about a church. In verse 4, Jesus actually implies that these people, these people that are dead, this church that is dead, they're, they're really like people with soiled clothes, which to them probably resonated because they're a whole, a whole group of people that are all about fine clothes. But, you know, I'll just tell you, and this might be a little light humor for such a serious topic, but I'm no stranger uh, in our family to soiled clothes. I've got four boys that I've had the privilege of raising and uh, I have an adorable, right now, an adorable little two-year-old. All my kids were adorable. Um, and Abe, our two-year-old, he is just this adorable little kid, this beautiful little kid that has this perfect smile. And I love when I see him smiling, I get home from work, I love going and giving him a hug and picking him up. And, and sometimes, I'm just going to be honest, sometimes that adorable smile from a distance is amazing. And then when I go pick him up, this wall hits me, and every parent knows what I'm talking about, that that cute face is kind of deceptive for what's there when you get up really close, that the reputation doesn't match the reality of what's going on in little Abe's pants. <laughs> and, and here's the thing, guys, that's a funny example, but man, this might be true of our churches. This might be true of PCC that from a distance, from afar, we might look really, really, really great. But man, when we get up close, the reputation doesn't match the reality. 
And church, there is something far greater at stake than an assault on our sense of smell here. That this is the question for our church. Does our reality, excuse me, does our reputation match our reality? That all of our church's man-made buildings, all of the plans, all of the programs, all of the productions, None of that, all of that man-made stuff is not what brings about life in a church. That is not where it is found. And that we may have a reputation of being alive, but the question I want us to ask is, are we? Are we alive? When Jesus sees us, are we truly alive? Jesus warns them in verse 3, he says, Hey, if you will not wake up from the dead... I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. You know, this city that's well fortified, that's up real high, this nice Acropolis, 1,500 feet in the air, there were only two times in history where it was taken over. And both times it was taken over, the history books say this, it was taken over because the guards of the city were sleeping on the job. And man, the church here, the church in Sardis, they immediately knew what Jesus was saying when he was saying this. He's saying, hey, if you don't wake up, just like your city was overtaken, if you don't wake up, man, you are going to lose everything that you hold dear. That's a pretty serious warning there in the church of Sardis. And then Jesus closes in verse 6. He says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this is a very interesting thing, a very interesting phrase. Because he doesn't just say this, and we've said, we haven't really told people this, but he doesn't just say this about the church in Sardis. He actually says this against every single church. He says this at the end of every church he is going to address and has addressed. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's repeated over and over and over again. And basically what he's saying is that everyone who has an ear and can hear what I'm saying right now, this applies to you. That it's not just about the first century church and its leaders. That it's not just about even PCC and its leaders. That it has a broader context than that. You know, there was an old preacher that preached through this message, the, the church of Sardis, the church that appears alive but is actually dead. He preached this whole message, and he preached it like a funeral. He brought a casket in. He put it at the front of the, 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 the worship center, and he preached this really hard message to his people. And then he told them on their way out, he said, I want you to come by this casket. Look in this casket, and you can see what's dead in our church. And it was funny because they walked by that casket and he had placed a mirror in the casket. So when they look into the casket, they see themselves. And, and I'm not recommending this preaching technique, uh, but I will say this. The point is effective. Jesus is not just speaking to the first century church and its leaders. He's not even just speaking to PCC and their leaders. He is speaking to us. Yeah. And so here's the question. Here's the question that we've spent this whole time setting up is what if everyone in our church looked just like you? I don't mean physically. I mean, what, like which church, if we looked all exactly like in the way that we thought just like you and we had the same experiences just like you, we had the same beliefs just like you, which church would we be in if we acted just like you? Would we, if we had 700 people coming to church like that and 
they were all copies of you, which one would we be? And it just goes back to that the statement that we made at the beginning of, I am the church. If I am the church, which one do I fall into? Would we be the church that looks great on the outside, but's dead on the inside like Sardis? Or like lost, have we lost our first love like Ephesus? Would we be filled with people who do great things, but live in immorality like uh, Thyatira or Pergamum? And, and that's the question that we need you to ask, what we have to ask of ourselves. And this is what we're going to spend just the next few minutes just talking about. And, and here's the thing. We haven't really planned this out of what we're going to talk about. Just we wanted to give you an insight into when we're studying this and we're reading through these different churches. What hit me? What hit Jonathan? We're just going to talk about that a little bit because this is very convicting. Because as much as I would like... To, for Jesus to say, no, if every if the church was made up of people just like Christian and just like Jonathan, it would be a great church and I'd have nothing to say bad about them. But us, to be honest, yeah. it's not always that, That's right. that, that true. Yeah, and I'll just tell you, we both, we came in Monday morning mm -hmm. and I was, honestly, I was kind of wrecked after reading this passage over and over again. I didn't, I didn't really see the church as much as I saw my own, uh, my own inability and my own uh, insufficiency in, in where the Lord was speaking. And every time we got to that, he who has an ear, let him hear, it was like Jesus was speaking right to me. Guys, I'm going to tell you the one that, that really has stuck out to me. There's actually a little bit of each one that, that kind of had, hit, hit me a little bit, but one that I just want to mention, um, and you might even mention the same one. We've not scripted any of this part. Um, and you might mention the same thing, but... Guys, I'm just going to tell you, some of you are in the same boat I am. Um, you grew up in church. You grew up uh, hearing the Word of God. You grew up being a part of the church and going to church and knowing what that's all about, Sunday school, connect groups, whatever. You were a part of that your whole life. And man, for me, when, when we look at the church at Ephesus, when we look at this church who's lost their first love, man, that just hit me. Like, have I lost my first love? It's like you said, man, I, I, I do okay with doing the right things. Yeah. I was doing the right things. I have the right teaching. Like, I, I know the right things. In fact, I've been studying through the book of Acts in my quiet time, and um, Ephesus was one of those churches. It was, you actually said this, I think. It was one of the most influential churches for that entire place. And maybe that's true for our church, and maybe that's even true for, for my ministry. Maybe it does influence people for, for good and for, for God's glory. But, man, personally, I, I really feel like I've, I've stepped away from my first love in a lot of ways. And I, a big indicator of that in my life is, is just not recognizing a true passion for who Christ is and a true passion for His people. That even through this crisis, man, I have been so focused on me. I've been so focused on how this affects me and how this influences me. When there are, there are people not just dying of coronavirus, there are people dying, entering an eternity in hell. And man, my love for them and my love for Christ should change the way I think and pray for those people. And man, that's where God has me right now, man, just, just convicting me over the lack of love that I truly have for Him and that I truly have for others right now. And mine's the same way. I love church. Like I, I'm, I know I'm sure a lot of you guys are feeling this, that are watching this. You just can't wait to get back, and it's such a, a part of who you are is just the fact that you come to church on Sundays and Wednesdays, and it's your people. I mean, all of my friends basically are 
people associated with this church. All the people I see on a regular basis are associated with this church, and I love it. And honestly, I, I tell people, if you're in, ever in Warehouse, and I've preached on this a couple times, I love church. I have the best job. Is it hard, and is it stressful sometimes? Yes, sure. But I love my job. I love being able to do this. I get passionate about the things of church, of programming and, and thinking through things that can be done in creative ways to share the gospel and, and connect with people and, and show off you know, who Jesus is. I get, I get excited about those kind of things. But there's often times that I get more excited about the organization of church than who Jesus is. And, I, and I'll flip I, it's supposed to be my relationship with God and then my relationship with church. And I'll flip that and say, you know, my most important thing and what I spend time thinking about is things of church, not things of, of God necessarily. And I get, man, uh, that's hard for me because Jesus is saying here that he's going to, that he's not happy with that, yeah. that that's not okay, that that's not okay that I can have good teaching and good and do good things and, and create a great programming. But I have to have this first love. And, and just for me, when I was sitting there thinking through, it's like, when is the last time that I've gotten so excited that I couldn't not keep from sharing the gospel with somebody? Yeah. You know, like I think about neighbors that live around me that I've had very little conversations. I just moved into a house actually like a year ago last week. And I, I haven't had much conversations with the neighbors. I don't know if they even know that I work at a church. Yeah. Much less do they know like what... Like, I don't know anything about their stories. I don't know. And this is just something that hit me. I'm thinking, man, if, I, if Jesus is my first love, why haven't I talked to those guys? Why haven't I talked to the people around me? And why, where is that excitement at? Because sometimes I feel like I do. I've lost that first love, and I have to make sure I'm in the Word and, and reading through that to, and praying and just enjoying of who God is. Yeah, amen. And so maybe, maybe you're kind of where we're at. You know, we, we intentionally wanted this time in our message to really just be real with you guys and just say, hey, we are not, I love what you said a second ago, that if the church was just made up of just me and you, it would be really, really flawed. <laughs> you don't want a church made up of just me and Jonathan. Yeah. And maybe you find yourself in that place. Maybe you've lost your first love, kind of like me and Christian have been kind of being convicted about this weekend. Maybe, maybe you've been compromising in areas of your life. Maybe you've allowed the enemy to kind of slip in this love of the world, this love of our culture that's kind of dominated your life and dominated really the decisions you make and the way you think about life. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, quit compromising. Quit following the teachings of Balaam and come back. Maybe, maybe it's corruption. Maybe you've allowed corruption into your life, immorality. You know, you were talking about that and I know this to be true and I know you know this to be true because we've counseled enough people that maybe you're that person out there that comes to church when we're here or maybe you're there in your home and you might sing the song and you might lift your hands and you might share Christ with people. But man, if you were honest, there's some secret immorality in your life that not many people know about that God is saying to you today, hey, come away from that. Leave that behind. If you are the church, don't be that anymore. Maybe it's your first love. Maybe, maybe you're a person that honestly on the surface has for years appeared like you were alive. You've said the right things. You've done the right things in public. And everyone thinks of you as this great Christian. And the truth of the matter is when Jesus looks at you, you're dead. 
And man, what, what a great day today. Today is the day to say, I want to step out of that death. I want to step out of that place. I want to step out of that compromise, that corruption, and I want to walk in light. I want to be the church that God has called me to be. And so if you find yourself in that place today, I want to, the first thing I want to say is, man, wake up. Woman, wake up. Jesus says this to the church there. He says in, in chapter 3, verse 2, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. He's saying, hey, wake up. Realize. Realize that you're dead. Realize that you're compromised. Realize that you're corrupt. Realize that you've lost your first love. Wake up. Yeah. And he actually continues. Jesus gives m these churches an out yeah. of improving themselves and that first step of wake up. But then it goes into remember. He says, remember in verse two, five, he says it in three threes of remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, remember then what you have received and heard. Remember what you've lost. That's wake up and then remember. Remember where you first came to know Jesus. Remember who Christ is and then go to repent. So wake up, remember, repent, confess yourself to God. Confess yourself to God. Confess who you are, where you're at, to yourself, to your friends. Open up, like confess that you made a mistake. He says this in verse 2.5 and 2.16 and 2.22 and 3.3. He says it all over the place. Repent, 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 repent. And so if he's saying all these churches that have all of these different problems, repent, we should repent. So wake up, remember, repent. And then lastly is this idea of repeat, repeat the first works. He says this to the church in Ephesus at the end. He says this in, Eph in Revelation 2.5 and he says, repent and do the good works you did at first. Repeat those good works. So those first works, even when you don't feel like it, repeat that. Repeat the, the waking up and the remembering and the repenting and then the things that you did, reading scripture, prayer, fellowshipping with other believers, things like that. And here's the, the really the thing about this, and I think that Jesus, he doesn't directly say this, but I think that it's important to take this out of the scriptures. Repeat it even when you don't feel like it. So oftentimes we get our, in our feelings and, well, I don't feel like doing it, so I'm not going to do it. I don't want to pretend. Just do it and have the, uh, the feelings we're follow. We, don't, we aren't governed by our feelings. We govern our feelings. And the great part about this is this works for Christ. And I just want to give a little shout out to all the marriages out here watching this. If you're in a bad place in your marriage, these four steps, wake up, remember, repent, repeat, work phenomenal for your marriage, right? It works for loving God because, but you know, our relationship with God is resembled in our relationship with our spouse. And so if you're in this problem where you're like, man, we have been in what, six, seven weeks of quarantine now and I'm tired of my spouse, wake up to who your spouse is, remember your first love, repent to her or him, and then repeat those first things that you did. Wake up, remember, repent, repeat. And guys, we, we know, we realize that this message is not as uplifting as a, a, and, and really encouraging as Acts 2 was. But man, we believe as a church, if God has called us to be what we're going to be, man, this is where it's at. Recognizing our own shortcomings, our own failures, our own flaws, and, and doing exactly what you just said. And, and guys, we're praying this morning that you don't see us as just people telling you what to do. We're not here to tell you what to do. We're here to remind you of who you are. 
that man, if you are the church, if you are a child of God, we want to remind you this morning that that is what you are. So live in that today. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Jesus, that we can come to you right now. And Lord, even in this hard passage that we heard this morning, this hard text of so much, uh, so much wrongdoing and, and even the warning that goes with that and what's to follow, that even in the midst of that, God, you are giving us an out. You are saying to us, wake up, remember, repent, repeat, wake up, remember, repent, repeat, God, that you want to bring healing into our situation, Lord. That it's more than just an organization like Christian said. It's more than just Pleasant City Church. God, it is so much more that we are the church and you are calling us to step up and step out. Out of our building, out of our time slot. Lord, you want to do great things through us, Lord. And God, we can't do those things if we are bogged down in compromise and corruption and losing our first love and dead when we're, when, and, and being dead. God, we don't want that anymore, Lord. So God, we welcome you in to our hearts this morning, Lord. We welcome you in to come and heal us of everything, Lord, that is, that is, that is sinful within us, Lord. Help us to evaluate our lives this week and in this message, Lord, and see you for who you are and what you want to accomplish in our lives. Jesus, thank you so much for loving us. And if there's someone here today, Lord, that's tuned in, like Christian said, maybe they're not a part of the church. Maybe they're just trying to figure what this whole Jesus thing is about, Lord. I pray today, Lord, that they would know your love for them, your affection for them, God, that you have a plan for their life, a plan not to harm them, but to bring them into a saving faith with you where they can spend an eternity with you and a hope for today and tomorrow. Jesus. Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray that if there's someone here, God, that they would give their heart to you today, Lord, Lord, in their home right now. So Jesus, we thank you for what you're going to do, what you're going to continue to do as we continue to go out and be the church. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.